I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ Public Radio. The last episode we had was very heavy, very election-focused, as, as necessary. But this week, we're going to give you something a little less jam-packed with news. Just one of my favorite conversations I've had in a while. Our episode today is with Katrina Cerise. Katrina, as she says, leads a double life. By day, she's a high school theater teacher at St. Edward's Central Catholic, and by night and on the weekends, she owns and operates Goodly Creatures, her theater production company. She's a producer, a director, a playwright, the list goes on and on. And I talked to Katrina about being an artist during the pandemic. Goodly Creatures lost their studio space during COVID, and so she's had to pivot online, both for her theater company and her high school classes. This summer, her company did a Shakespeare production over Zoom. We did Much Ado About Nothing, and I decided that I would just push my patience even further and try to cast actors who were sheltering in place together uh, to play couples and characters that play off of each other. And I thought, Trina, you're insane. You're looking for needles in haystacks. Good luck. (laughs) And fortunately, I found three sets of roommates who could do it. (laughs) And that was incredible to me. Um, So I was able to mix up the shots that were Zoom shots and also uh, film separately the one-on-one scenes with with the other actors. So, and then I got nifty with sound effects and music and transitions and things like that. All right, we're just going to jump right into it. Next episode, we'll be back with extra stories, a full news roundup, all that kind of stuff. But for now, just enjoy my delightful conversation with teacher, playwright, comedian, director, producer, all-around Renaissance woman, Katrina Cerise. While I was researching, I was, I was trying to put together, you know, for like a little intro, like a list of the things that you do, like what you would consider your title. And, and Katrina, there, <laughs> there were so many things that I like was running out. I don't know if I have the breath to get through it in one sentence. If you, when people ask you, like, what do you do for a living? Like, what do you say to them? I say to them, Typically that I, I lead a double life. Um, oh, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a, a high school teacher, high school English teacher during the day, and I run uh, a startup theater company at night. So that's how I summarize my busy life. And I apologize for my cat in the background. No. I call him Pavarotti. <laughs> I was going to say, the only thing that we ask is for you to say the name of the cat. So, so we know that. Yeah. <laughs> His name is Max, but he's earned a nickname. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I came up with, as your title, it, we have teacher, uh, comedian, director, small business owner. Are these all, does that encompass everything? Is there anything I'm missing there? Playwright. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was going to be something <laughs> I missed out on. Uh, yeah. Know, you you started your teaching job at the very beginning of the pandemic. Is that correct? Or around that I, time? Right before it started, I was uh, tasked with uh, taking over the theater department and uh, English and becoming an English teacher for a local high school. And uh, I had one month in person about before we all went virtual. And uh, so that was an exciting experience, I guess, uh, having to change all of my plans. Um, but fortunately, um, I do have a digital marketing background as well. I did that for a while. So right. technology is, you're good at technology if you're good at troubleshooting. So I did a lot of troubleshooting and I was able to make it work for me. So I, I felt blessed that, that I kind of had some tools already at my disposal to handle the instant switch 
Um, yeah. There was very little warning and uh, we just adapted. And amazingly, a lot of my fellow teachers did the same. It just was incredible to see how, how people were able to just adapt so quickly. What school are you at right now? So I'm at St. Edward Central Catholic in Elgin. Okay. Uh, so I teach there um, the theater program. Uh, I teach theater studies, film studies, British literature, AP language and composition uh, throughout my day, both regular and honors Ooh. for Britland. So yeah. like the, was the month, bef- in-person month before the pandemic, that's like just enough time to like get a feel for it start to be comfortable know everyone's name before you get, um, you know, ejected <laughs> out of the plane. <laughs> yeah, I, de- I definitely tried. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was, it was interesting though, to see how the kids adapted. Um, the majority of them did. And uh, I was grateful that, that for the most part, they ca- they kept up with it and stayed motivated. Right. And now that we're um, we're currently in a hybrid situation, and uh, so far so good, um, I'm just happy I get to see the kids and build that rapport. Because you know I was worried about a brand new school year and no one knowing me and me not knowing them. And um, there's something about that um, being able to build the rapport and help motivate the kids. And so we're we're making the best of the situation is I think the best way to put it. What about the the theater portion of it? I know that with your production company, you've done some some Zoom production over mm-hmm. the past couple months. What does that look like with your your high school students? Is it? I, I mean, especially well, as a director, is it maddening? Is it uh, uh, just <laughs> more troubleshooting all day? Yeah. Well, see, I was lucky in that when I was in college, um, I did dabble in film a little bit, and I know that Zoom okay. productions are a far stretch from a film production, right? They're this weird radio theater hybrid. And um, fortunately over the summer, I did uh, a virtual production of Shakespeare because we, are, we're, we were originally tasked with performing live Shakespeare in the park. Uh, and of course that couldn't happen. So I got my full training this summer producing that show and uh, you know, feature length Zoom production. How do I do this in a way that's engaging and doesn't make people fall asleep? You guys did um, much ado, correct? Yes, we did much ado about nothing. And I decided that I would just push my patience even further and try to cast actors who were sheltering in place together uh, to play couples and characters that play off of each other. And I thought, Katrina, you're insane. You're looking for needles in haystacks. Good luck. (laughs) And fortunately, I found three sets of roommates who could do it. (laughs) And that was incredible to me. Um, So I was able to mix up the shots that were Zoom shots and also uh, film separately the one-on-one scenes with, with the other actors. So, and then I got nifty with sound effects and music and transitions and things like that. Um, and then I'm producing another show for the Family Services annual fundraiser that's coming up. And in doing that, I started doing research on old time radio shows and how they did it because it is this awkward theater radio hybrid. So for St. Ed's kids, I thought, well, gosh, this is something we could do. So I'm basically taking what I've built for my own company and giving it to my kids and putting it together. Instead of on Zoom, we use Microsoft Teams. Sure. So um, I'm 
giving the kids uh, exposure to the history of radio and we've been reading radio scripts and uh, the plan is for them to write their own and uh, with the help of one of my students who's a tech whiz uh, we're going to put together a full-scale um, production video uh, to be uploaded for for the St. Ed's community. That's interesting I hadn't quite put together the the radio aspect of it right and it is something that I was thinking about because not too long ago during the pandemic I had found there's an F. Scott Fitzgerald short story that's called um called a diamond the size of the Ritz and I found this like 1940 something Orson Welles radio drama of it and like the production quality and the live orchestra was unbelievable I was like I can't believe this was a thing that they did and so that's that's really exciting to try to yeah that's awesome. well and see I'm an old lady in a millennial's <laughs> body because I listened to uh the jazz station the local jazz station and they put up old radio shows from way back then especially around the holidays and I just get a kick out of them yeah you know so I was sort of primed I guess for the challenges that we're dealing with right now <laughs> I know and what has been I guess one of the challenges that, you know, as a theater director that you think that uh, people might not consider who are just like showing up, might not know much about the process that it, you usually go through. What is something that's like makes you pull your hair out or something that you didn't expect going into this? Well, I think it's difficult to build morale. Uh, when you're not in person. Um, actors are social beings. And when you sit down to do a Zoom recording, there's the element of time management. And then there's the element of the post-production editing that happens. And, um, you know, I have actors who are fabulous on stage and get and live on that audience feedback and you just don't get it on, a, on Zoom. And um, film actors are, I, I think are, much better primed for being able to perform without the feedback of an audience. But traditional stage actors are used to working directly with an audience, right? Responding, waiting for laughs, things like that. And, um, and ad-libbing, actors love to ad-lib. And when there's a post-production recording uh, that is required for a Zoom platform, because I don't really like the live streaming um, because it takes up a lot of bandwidth and someone logs in with a bad connection, they can't wait for it to load. Um, you know, I have to tell my actors, be careful with ad libs because I need continuity. You know, even on Zoom, you deal with continuity issues. Um, so there are, so yeah, so there's a lot of these little, you know, film elements that come in that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate uh, on Zoom because it seems so commonplace sort of normal to have a zoom meeting but when you think about the post-production quality and making sure everyone is everyone's frame is fairly consistent and you know no one's cat jumps up in the middle of a shot or uh you know there it's just there's a lot less you can hide I guess on zoom there's a lot there you can't get away with as much no and with the absence of some of that immediate audience feedback, does it make you as a director feel like you need to give them even more feedback yourself, almost like a film director would? Yes, it does. Um, what I like to do with actors is I do a lot of um, pre, even pre-rehearsal text analysis and building the character together and, and taking all this time 
and uh, to, to build up relationships between actors. And it's really um, difficult to do that via Zoom. You can try, um, but it's not the same as building chemistry one-on-one. -on -one. And because also they don't have the audience feedback to really know what they're doing, I sort of find myself becoming a laugh track um, during rehearsals <laughs> because I want to validate them, you know, when they do yeah. something well. And I am genuinely excited, um, especially when it's my own work that we're producing. Um, but I do sometimes feel like I have to be a laugh track to help them to go, oh, that's working, you know, um, because I'm really the only person giving them any feedback. Uh, so I think that's a little frustrating for them, but uh, I do show my work and, uh, you know, rough drafts and things to my friends to get another pair of eyes on it. So I can say, hey guys, I got this feedback. This is, you know, this is, let's try this. Um, and I still invest in costumes for my actors. I still purchase props and costumes for them uh, because it's, it's important for getting into a character. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that even though it's on Zoom and we might not have a set, it's amazing what just one costume piece will do for, for an actor. And so that's why I am trying to cultivate this hybrid of, on screen uh, and yet this radio element as well, because it it helps them to get into character and, and it helps in terms of my students, it helps them get more excited. You know, yeah. when I tell them you can still have costumes, they're like, oh, we can, but we're just on teams. And I'm, I'm like, no, you can have costumes. I want you to have costumes. It helps you get into character. It helps you be creative and it helps you get this kind of escape from reality for a little bit and just be someone else in a different time, a different place and, you know, enjoy what we can do creatively right now. Yeah. And with your high schools, you know, when we're talking about just like building a rapport or even like the feedback part of this, right. Does it make it easier or more challenging when you might be dealing with, you know, less experienced actors who, you know, don't have, you know, maybe as much experience with the, you know, what it's like getting that live uh, real-time feedback all the time. You know, maybe that, it, maybe if they haven't experienced that much, maybe it's an easier transition to, you know, the it not being there. You know, that's an interesting point. Uh, the, I don't usually work with uh, new actors in my company. Uh, I tend to get experienced folks uh, for the most part every now and then I'll get someone who's pretty new to the to the art form um, but I have noticed that less experience can actually be a benefit with the transition to zoom uh, because you're not expecting anything right that's you what know, I was thinking with the high schoolers right yeah yeah and so they are and they're so and my high schoolers are just so enthusiastic um, I get enthusiastic actors too but my high schoolers don't have jobs, you know, they, they go to school. And so this <laughs> is their creative outlet and they're not exhausted by the time we get to rehearsal. And, uh, and so hyping them up is, is easy. They just get excited. I mean, we watched uh, an episode of the Bickersons and they just got a kick out of that. And we, we read uh, an Agatha Christie radio script and that was a blast they loved it um you know even when they would get frustrated reading the weird french words that perot <laughs> likes to say they they were still so happy and um you know being able to do that for them is just it's it's a breath of fresh air it really is yeah you know it's this actually this 
conversation is actually almost a perfect segue into something I was going to bring up, which is actually, if you don't mind, Katrina, I'm going to quote you for a minute here. This is something that I found in one of the articles that was written about you here, is that you said, in order to be creative, we must be playful. In order to be playful, we must be vulnerable. And in order to be vulnerable, we must be feel safe. Obviously, 2020 is a time where it's hard for us to feel safe in any situation and for that to lead to vulnerability and that to lead to creativity and being playful. Can you talk about what that's been like, you know, like dealing with, you know, creativity, trying to be playful and vulnerable? That's got to be difficult in some ways to try to cultivate when people don't feel safe all the time. It is. Um... It's one of the reasons why I have not attempted either with school or in my own business to leave the virtual setting yet. Mm. Uh, Everything is virtual for a reason. And part of that is because in terms of school, I have kids who are exclusively e-learning, who did not sign on for the hybrid method. And I don't want them to feel left out. They need a creative outlet just as much as the kids who are half in person, half not. Uh, need a creative outlet. And as far as my business is concerned, I mean, Broadway just less, you know, just recently announced they'd be shut down through May 30th. So Mm. I remember when all this went down, I sort of had this weird inkling that it was going to be a while. And I invested a lot into preparing for the virtual thing to stick around. Um, because of that safety aspect, because a lot of the actors I work with are in that really high risk percentile. Um, And I did, and it was really interesting because some people reached out to me over the summer and they were saying, well, can't you have a socially distanced production? And theoretically, yes, you can. In execution though, the temptation to be close to other people is too high. Um, you know, you can't, I can't play social distance police backstage, uh, or in the booth or on stage for that matter. Once the show is up, it's out of my hands. And that's sort of where the director has to breathe. (laughs) You can't also be directing audience traffic. Exactly. Um, house managers deserve a raise if that's the the case. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and I just thought, Sure, the audience could social distance, but actors are people too. And, <laughs> and I did not want to, to put anyone at risk. Uh, in terms of making my actors feel safe, it's interesting to see the, the benefit of telling them I'll be editing the post-production. Because, you know, they're used to being live and having all this time to rehearse and um, you know, build the rapport with their cast and get up on stage and just let the adrenaline take them away. On recording, it's a little different. And, you know, they, to tell them, oh, I'm editing this, don't worry. It helps them breathe a little and not feel like they have to be so stiff <laughs> right. and get it all perfectly. It frees yeah. them up so I can take the best take. And so I explain that to them. And it's a, it's a nightmare for me editing. It takes forever, but um, to get the best performance, it's worth it. Yeah, I was going to say for that, especially for that Much Ado show that you did, if you had to put a ballpark figure on, on how many hours of editing that took, could you begin to fathom it? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, we were in rehearsal for a month prior, 
And uh, we sat down to record, which took about five hours because of course that was a huge cast and everyone had different internets and different devices and <laughs> things had to be re-recorded because of you know things out of our control. And then editing, gosh, I couldn't even tell you. It was probably 20 hours, something like that, I would say. I mean, for my 30 minute production that I'm putting up uh, in the next week for this event, that took me six hours. That was 30 minutes. Oh, wow. It's yeah. interesting that with the, you know, the vulnerability of the performance itself too, like at some point it might be difficult because it's on Zoom and, you know, like you said, the costumes help when you're trying to immerse yourself in that. But also it's like people desperately want their creative outlet. So like, you know, maybe they're, maybe it's even more, you know, people are devoted to getting the best out of themselves there. Yes, absolutely. And I think too, what, what's, what I was very grateful for was that we still had venues who were, who wanted to provide Shakespeare for their communities and who still paid us um, our original quotes for a live production, which really helped because in many ways, this production was more expensive uh, because of the, the technology we needed to pull it off. Right. Uh, but I was grateful that I was able to pay my actors because so many of them lost gigs because of this. And so to be able to throw a stipend their way meant a lot to me. Absolutely. I know that's something that, you know, in my research that, I mean, it's something that you bring up in almost every interview is like about paying your, paying people to do the work they do, but especially in 2020, right? Yes. And even, you know, even if it's not very much, you know, stipends are, you know, they're, they're usually not very much, but just setting the precedent that the work is worth paying for. I mean, I haven't found that it motivates actors more. Actors are either motivated or not. The, the paycheck really doesn't change that. Um, but what it does do is there is a bigger sense of pride in the work. Yeah. And uh, not only that, but for actors to become equity, you have to have a history of paid jobs. So when I get up and comers, I think to myself, well, this is something you can put down when your time comes to become equity. So I, I look at Goodly as a stepping stone for folks like that. Yeah, yeah. I wanna move really quick to another creative outlet that you have, uh, stand-up comedy. <laughs> you know, yeah. you mentioned acting. Have, I suppose it's probably been like, what, seven months since you've done any kind of acting or on-stage performance of any kind? Is yes. That's my last one was the week the shutdown was announced. Have you had a seven month gap in performance uh, before then that you can remember? <laughs> um, never. <laughs> Since you were what, like four or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. never. I've never gone that long. Uh, not in a long time um, that I can remember. Never seven months. Uh, so... <laughs> It's, it's strange. I was thinking, I, I guess, my, is my question just like, how are you? Like, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I miss it. Um, my I know it's a profoundly I... loaded question to ask no. anyone now, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you see, my, my, my parents would, would uh, make fun of me as a child because whenever I would get neurotic, they would say, Katrina, you need to be in a play. <laughs> like, go find something, anything. Um, because it's, it's what it's my lifeblood. It, it keeps me sane. It's, um, you know, once, once the acting bug bites you, you're done for life. You're, you're just cursed. You must do acting or theater 
in any form to stay alive. And uh, so it's been hard. And I was really bummed because I had a few successful stand-up gigs and they were a blast. And all of a sudden I was making this progress. I was getting on this writing role. I was figuring out my style and then poof, gone. Um, so it's something I'd love to get back to um, when I have the chance. So yeah, it was funny. I, I had I had a friend that was doing some stand up at the beginning of the year and, you know, like January, just before everything was happening. And I remember then, you know, being at one of the local shows and, you know, there's like 30 open micers that are going up. And I remember commenting to my brother being like, wow, like every, every single one of these people has like their two minutes on legal marijuana. Cause like, that was the thing everyone's <laughs> thinking of. And now I was like, I can only think that like, the next 10 years of open mic standup is exclusively going to be quarantine material. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of it. That's for sure. And if you're into morbid humor, man, you're in the money. Yeah. You've got material for days. <laughs> well, and it's something that is universal, right? Uh, right yeah. Comedians make that's their bread and butter is universal, relatable topics. And then, you know, stirring the pot a little bit, you're able to do that you're golden. I think the trick is going to be every comedian is going to want to comment on quarantine. Right. And so that'll become a broken record real fast because there's also the danger of it being too soon. Right. There's so a lot we'll of things to juggle there, right? It's, it's being too soon. You, it, it, but it's so rare that any ever we have a shared experience that's like this. So it almost feels like malpractice if you're a comedian not <laughs> to mention it. But at You're, the same time, but I, then I guess, I guess it's, it's just any kind of comedy, right? Which is, it's your job to, to make that sure. interesting and funny. <laughs> well, it, it's funny. This sort of ties back into uh, my class uh, prior to the Canterbury Tales. I, prior to any text, I love to give historical background because I really strongly believe it's difficult to appreciate a text fully in a vacuum. And uh, well, the premise of the Canterbury Tales is it's during the Black Plague. And so... <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> excuse so, me I'm gonna laugh before I cry for a minute here now. <laughs> I know yeah. and so I had to tell my kids this is a different time it's different it's it's the black plague it's different very different <laughs> I was saying I know this seems like I, I actually said this to my classes I said I know this seems like it must be in really poor taste for me to teach about <laughs> black plague oh, right god. now <laughs> but you really need to know about it in order to appreciate the Canterbury Tales. And they, they handled it very well. I think I managed to, you know, very graciously walk on those eggshells, you know? <laughs> so <Wow. Yeah. laughs> it was something else. It was a surreal experience. I thought, how many teachers are going through this right now? No, or are can't. they just ignoring that piece of it altogether? <laughs> Tap dancing on those eggshells. That's... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just... Whew, something else. <laughs> I know there, there's, that's a constant, you know, um, almost philosophical question as a teacher, right? Is like, how much do you want to get into it? And do you only get into it to the extent that it relates to the material or like the logistics of how your class works? Yeah, for sure. I, well, see, my big thing is um, like any English teacher will tell you class discussion is, so important. The way you get the kids to discuss a work that was written hundreds of years ago is to get them to care about it. And in order to get them to care about it, you have to make it relevant 
to what they're living right here, right now. Yeah. So I couldn't avoid it. You know, it's, it was a natural part of the conversation and I, all I do is moderate. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the other things I was, I I saw that you were, um, you were in a production of the yellow wallpaper. Yes. And uh, I was just talking to someone a couple of days ago about that short story and about how it feels very 2020 in a lot of ways, not only because it's a story about mental health and specifically about women's mental health, but it's, you know, everyone is locked in their house by themselves, uh, just surrounded and having misinformation thrown in their face all day. <laughs> and I just yeah. could not stop thinking about it. Like, I wonder if Katrina is is going over that in some of her English classes or production or theater classes. I'm like, that is such a oddly specific thing for this year. No, oh, I know. I had no idea how prophetic it really was. Um, right. <laughs> I, uh, the, the, the plays is a fantastic adaptation uh, written by Greg Oliver Bodine in New York. And uh, he's really well known out there for his uh, one acts and his one person shows and adaptations. And, uh, it's one of my proudest roles because it was oh challenging. Um, but yeah, I had no idea how prophetic it was going to be. And I had a weird prophetic moment too with uh, my kids in school because right before the quarantine in my film studies class, I had them watch uh, The Seventh Seal. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, playing a game of chess with death. <laughs> we had just finished it right before the quarantine. And I went, oh man. That's some strange timing. So yeah, I can imagine. And the I am fascinated by just the the one person production, your castaway role, how how that went as as an actress. Like you said, this is a communal experience. This is a you know uh, something that you go through with a lot of other people. But then just to have that role on your own, what was that like? Um, exhausting, painful. Um, mentally draining. <laughs> um, Which makes I, sense for that role also, yeah. Yeah, um, but I could relate to her, obviously not not to that extreme extent. Um, I, hope, I hope not, yeah. <laughs> but I could relate to her and, I, and it wasn't the first role of its kind for me. Um, mm. I had played young woman in Mackinac uh, when I was in college. And uh, if you're not familiar, that play is loosely based on the very first woman to be convicted of murder and uh, sentenced to the death penalty in the electric chair. And you actually see her be sentenced and executed on stage. And I had to play that role. So I walked into Yellow Wallpaper having some, I guess a warning about what I was in for. And the reason I did it was because I didn't have a, I didn't have a large budget. And I only hired two um, people to help me with that show. Actually, excuse me, four. I hired four people to help me with that show. I hired um, an assistant director, uh, stage manager, costume designer, and a tech person. And uh, they were they were a huge support system for me. And then obviously my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, uh, definitely helped keep me sane <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it was it was it was a heavy role. And one of the things that I totally underestimated was just how much uh, mental capacity it would take to both go insane and narrate 
and be then and be this physical it's one of the most physical roles i ever played because half the show she's on her knees crawling um following the wallpaper following the wall and, um, her hands all over the wall yeah yeah so one of the things we chose to do um to lighten the burden on me in terms of narration was we decided to take half of the script that was purely narration like describing the setting things like that um and turn them into voiceovers of myself so it was like you could hear the thoughts in my head oh, okay. and as the play progressed i became more vocal so i was literally going out of my mind oh wow yeah and that was a really effective choice for the performance in fact i heard from so many people that 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 was one of their favorite things about it so yeah. that was a, that was a that, but that was a cool um in in terms of tech that was a really neat development and something I've never done before. I never really tried um, to, to turn something uh, classic contemporary. And I think we kept it in that time period, but that definitely contemporized it and made it much more engaging, I think, than had I just been speaking the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said about, you know, teaching during the pandemic with all these tech platforms, getting creative with tech and voiceover, I'm sure you'll have plenty of opportunity to do that for, God knows how long we keep doing this, but yeah, that's uh, that's neither here nor there. But uh, you know, I'm curious too about you know personally, you know, your your playwright along with all this, and we we talked a little bit about how you haven't been able to get on stage, but just with your your playwriting too, and and just writing in general, like how has how has the pandemic and quarantine and everything affected your relationship to your art, if anything? It has changed the means but not the motivation, say. Mm. For instance, there's this original Christmas show that I produced last year that I absolutely fell in love with and it's written purely for audience engagement. And so obviously we can't have that this year. Um, and then when I was tasked to create a show for this fundraiser, uh, I wanted to produce something of my own because even virtual productions uh, charge royalties. And, uh, and as they should, writers should absolutely be compensated for their work. Um, but as a playwright, I said to myself, well, let's, let's get off my butt and write something again. Uh, it's an excuse to be creative again. And, uh, and, it, and it's, I'm just lucky that I had an excuse to be creative, that I do have an audience prescribed for me. Um, I see a lot of actors getting together and doing these Zoom readings on Facebook groups. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. Um, but I feel very privileged that I get to still have some, some feedback from total strangers still. Um, because I, I, you need constructive feedback and not just a bunch of yes men saying, oh, everything's wonderful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember I got a sort of ambivalent review for my debut production of Goodly Creatures um, that I wrote, uh, an adaptation of Shakespeare's sonnets. And uh, it was basically, well, this was good and this wasn't so good. And he posted it to his personal Facebook and he was a relative of one of the actors. And I said, oh my gosh, I wasn't even friends with him on Facebook. I just, it was just, she was tagged or whatever. And I said, could you please post that on the Facebook page? And he went, really? And I said, absolutely. Any conversation, any conversation about my work is, is welcome, right? It's, um, you know, that's just, 
you can't grow as an artist without it. So I'm very privileged that that I get to still perform for complete strangers who have no investment in me or my feelings, and uh, I can get I can get some feedback. <laughs> yeah, does does writing and being creative in that way feel more urgent? Does it feel more exhausting or both? <laughs> well, hmm. I would say it feels definitely more urgent. I feel like the need for it is, is more Um, because anyone can tune into, you know, Netflix or Hulu or Amazon prime. Um, But the local arts are who is really struggling right now. Um, The small theaters that are wondering how are we going to pay our rent? Um, In fact, we goodly, lost our studio space because of the pandemic, because we had to cancel so many live productions and uh, did, would not have the, the revenue we needed to sustain that. Mm. Um, so we're back to the basics. We're back to renting as we need things um, and rehearsing out of my home, you know? Um, but right now during pandemic time, I don't see us getting together in person for a while. So it's not really an urgent issue. Um, I'm just happy my theater's still open. I'm just happy I still have my ensemble. I still have um, the ability to produce. Um, So instead of putting my money into a space that was rendered useless to me based on current circumstances, I was able to invest in a lot of tech um, to adapt. And uh, so I think that what's urgent about it is keeping our names out there, keeping the local arts alive promoting other local artists and giving them a platform to perform if they're actors. And um, so that's the urgency that I feel um, is on behalf of myself and other local artists and theaters and um, live performance venues that are struggling right now. Um, In terms of exhaustion, for me, writing is, it's, I think it's Dorothy Parker, uh, one of my favorite authors who said, I essentially, I'm paraphrasing, I hate the process of writing, but I love having written. Yeah, and, no, I can relate to that on a, <laughs> on a very <laughs> fundamental level, yeah. <laughs> it's so true. I get up um, in the morning and I bleed, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's a comedy or a tragedy or a mystery, you know, um, all of which I've written um, now. I was able to check off mystery, the mystery box uh, with the latest one. And uh, that Agatha Christie action. Oh, yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's basically a spoof. It's a total <laughs> spoof. It'll be on the YouTubes after the event. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's just, it's a project, especially when you're a creative person and you are a perfectionist, uh, like I am, uh, it's hard not to beat yourself up every page. You know, you just have to sort of turn that critic off, be creative and come back to it later. And, yeah. um, so, but it's never, it's never an easy process. Any, any, any writer who says writing is easy, I immediately question them. Yeah. And probably <laughs> isn't very good. <laughs> if so, it truly is, or I'm just the most jealous I've ever been in my life. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. If, if a great writer says it's easy, I'm like, that's, oh, kudos. What's your... Yeah, what? I, one of my favorite <laughs> yeah. uh, artists was a cartoonist and writer named Darwin Cook, who was a Canadian uh, cartoonist that passed away a couple years ago. And I remember there was a video on you on, on the YouTubes of, of him doing some commission work at like a convention and of, of him drawing 
this this piece for someone and and of course you know like anytime anyone's like sees just an incredible artist doing like in the middle of doing their work and it looks like he's just sitting there and drawing this beautiful piece in like five minutes and the guy's just like oh you make it look so easy (laughs) and darwin cook goes yeah it is pretty easy after 40 years Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think about that every morning when I'm writing and I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, oh, only 38 years. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> 38 years and 22 hours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like the, uh, there has been this many days since the catastrophe. <laughs> we have 38 years before this is easy. Yeah. yeah. And with what you talked about with the local art scene too, it's, you know, I think even in non-pandemic times, um, there's a lot of people that just, aren't aware of the local art scene that's in their backyard. Mm-hmm. And so getting, you know, I, I see that, you know, in my station all the time, we have different PSAs about local events that we, that we read out. And I think about now going in there and all of them are, you know, check check out the YouTube link for this, check out the Zoom link for this show we're trying to have. And it's tough enough, right? When people you know, maybe aren't as aware as they should be, but trying to direct people towards these new platforms to shepherd them towards the right zoom links and stuff i'd imagine is is can be tough oh for sure absolutely it's tough um it's 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 interesting to me too because i've seen some places manage to successfully charge for tickets and i'm really happy to see that that's happening um especially with older audience members who may not be as adept at technology. And there are plenty of young people who aren't adept at it either. Um, So for them to be making ticket sales is fabulous. Um, But I haven't, uh, I haven't dived into that yet or dove. I haven't dove into that yet Um, because I, I want to try to offer uh, stuff that's free to the public right now because so many people are struggling um, financially. You know, our unemployment rate is extremely high uh, due to the pandemic, et cetera. I'm not saying that I won't ever charge because I still need to survive, pay my actors, et cetera. Um, But uh, I'm encouraged that some places are managing to successfully charge ticket sales and that people are still willing to pay uh, for a Zoom reading or for a video on Vimeo. Um, I think that gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of hope because one of the things that I really want us to, as a, as a culture, is to move away from the idea that art is charity. Art, in my opinion, is a good service like anything else. Uh, I look to the ancient Greeks and what their definition of theater was, aside from all the phallus jokes. It was meant to uplift and inspire their community to cause self-reflection and catharsis and even the word actor in ancient Greek was synonymous with teacher. Mm. And that's how I view theater uh, and art in general is that is a good in service like anything else. And I, and I hope that um, we can grow to appreciate it in that way uh, with the same level of appreciation as other goods and services. Well, I think that was a tremendous segue into my last question talking about teaching right now, which is, you know, you've been doing this for eight months, nine months, something, including that one month of in-person. What is, 
one of the big, you know, I hate asking like, what is the biggest or most important of anything? Cause I feel like it puts a lot of pressure on the answer to be like, Oh, it has to be the, <laughs> what, so I'll say a important thing, or what is a big thing that you've learned about education and about teaching over the last eight months? Hmm. Most important thing or a important thing yeah. that I've learned about teaching for me, what has been really impactful and something I've learned from is that never underestimate your students' intelligence. I think that um, a lot of my students, I am sometimes the first person to expose them to a period of history or a question uh, that they never considered before. And I, I honestly am very often surprised and inspired by their answers. And so I challenge them more than I think they're accustomed to. And they rise to the occasion. And so I think that's probably one of the most important things I've learned is never underestimate them. And I sort of was primed for that when I was teaching for um, Drama Kids International. I taught for them for about two years and I was teaching itty bitties. So first grade through sixth grade. And I never spoke down to them. You know, I never enlisted them with, you know, driving a car, you know, but I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't did. have them do any forklift training. <laughs> right. But I, I didn't belittle them. And in talking to them um, with the, with a sense of respect, I got respect and having those expectations help them to rise to the, to meet them. And so that concept translated to high school really well in that, you know, having higher expectations while not disparaging them when you, when they don't meet them. I think that's really what I've learned Perfect. is build them up. Build them up. Absolutely. I'll surprise you. I know. I think that's a great place to end on. And before we get out of here, I, you know, we talked about supporting local art scene. Let's, let's tell the people where they can find your stuff. Goodly Creatures is your production company. Yes. Where can they find, where are the Zoom links? Where are the YouTubes? Where can we, where can we support <laughs> you? Where can we find you on, on these great internets? <laughs> sure. Um, so we're Goodly Creatures Theater. Our our website is www.goodly, G-O-O-D-L-Y, creatures, C-R-E-A-T-U-R-E-S.com. And that's where you'll find all of the Zoom links and the YouTube links. Um, Can to... they find the uh, the Much Ado About Nothing show? Is that still somewhere on the internet? Unfortunately, no, ah, because it was alive. It was it was going to be live. The venues had obligations to shut it down after a certain amount of time. So they were both live for a month. Uh, about the trailer is still up. I can, I'm keeping the trailer. So if you want to kind of see what we did with it, you can look at the trailer. Um, but the next uh, video will be up, and it was uh, for the Family Services Association of Greater Elgin's fundraiser. Uh, and that's the Agatha Christie spoof, uh, written by yours truly. So laugh or I'll cry. And, uh, <laughs> and that'll be up, uh, after the fundraiser, it's debuting there. And since this is coming out later, I don't feel bad saying that. So, um, you'll see the link on our, uh, website and, uh, I'm hoping to be able to produce something like that again soon. 
Perfect. In no, no shame in these plugs. It's an it's a power cord over here. We're going to plug as much as we can. <laughs> oh, you bet. You think I'm new at the elevator pitch? I'm not. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think we heard the cat a couple more times in the background. Can we get that cat's name one more time for the people? That's back Max. Home? That's okay. Max Aru. <laughs> Max, we, we always appreciate Max being on the podcast. <laughs> All right, Katrina. I'll let him know. Well, <laughs> Thank you for coming on. It was a delight. I appreciate you taking some time and having a conversation with us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you, of course, for listening. And as always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on this show. It's how we get great people like Katrina. Send them our way. The email is teacherslounge at niu.edu. That's teacherslounge at niu.edu. No apostrophes necessary there. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share us, like us, whatever you can do. It all helps. And a big shout out to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups for the music you hear on our show. Big thank you to Spencer Tripp for our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. Bye.